0: Hello, and welcome, everyone. I am Evan McCann, and this is The Hard Part. This show is a deep dive into strategies, founding stories, and more behind Canada's top founders, investors, and leaders. My guest today is Andrew Ruda. Andrew is the co-founder of Flexbook. Flexpo is improving healthcare for everyone by building developer-first infrastructure. In this episode, we discuss Andrew's first venture, Ross Intelligence, what it is like building an API business, and why Andrew chose health tech for his second venture. Please enjoy my conversation with Andrew Aruda. Andrew, I'd really like to start with your experience of being a lawyer, also getting your JD. What was that like? And, you know, I've, I've met a few founders now that have gone JD, lawyer, and then jumped into being a founder. So what have you taken from that kind of background and it made you successful as a founder?
1: Yeah, so I think the way that I got my JD and went to law school was very much, I think, the way it happens for a lot of people. I had... Um, my mom and my dad really kind of be like, hey, you know, um, you could be anything you want to be when you grow up, uh, as long as it's a doctor or a lawyer. And I think that provided a good North Star overall in terms of kind of what I ended up doing. But I was obsessed with um, computers from a really young age. So i signed into the internet right when it was really breaking through. I remember the first time I was at a library, there was I didn't even have internet at home yet. It wasn't as like common when I like logged into Google for the first time. So Um, Why I bring this all up is while I, you know, becoming a a lawyer was really awesome because it allowed me to develop a bunch of skills like reading a bunch of documents, synthesizing, learning on the fly, um, negotiation, um, trying to piece through and make the right decisions with information. Um, And then I was able to pursue my passion, which was entrepreneurship after law school. But I, you know, I think it actually directly um, helps me every day. And now I am building and I've, I've built in legal and now I'm in health and um, very regulatory um, rich areas. So I think having that background in uh, the law helped a lot. And it's funny cause you see, um, obviously you see a lot of people with MBAs out there in the business world, but there is a large number of folks with uh, law degrees. And I think it's a combination of, uh, they didn't know what to do immediately after their undergrad slash, I think uh, you do get a lot of skills um, even around working with others and kind of thinking through decision making and um, that, that is just unique. And so I've been really lucky. At first I was kinda like, oh, I could have skipped those years in my brain. Sometimes I'm like, oh, I could have gone and got it got an MBA instead. But I actually think um I've 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 learned the MBA on on the fly based off of the skill set I learned with the with the law degree.
0: So you spend some time as a lawyer. Do you start getting that entrepreneurial itch to jump into something? Are you noticing, is this a firsthand problem that you're noticing while you're working as a lawyer? Uh, Ross Intelligence, how did you really jump into your first startup? Was that something you were seeing in the market, firsthand experience? What led you to starting that?
1: Yeah, so it was a, I'd say like a kind of a perfect storm where I, I really wanted to be an entrepreneur. I was, I, I think in some ways, like you can learn entrepreneurship where you, I, I was born an entrepreneur is what I would say. Like ever since I was a little kid, um, I just, you know, had a, had a pop stand and like, you know, on hot days I had juice and, you know, I just kind of always was thinking through, like really got excited about when my parents put on garage sales and I could sell my toys and I don't know, just like was something I really was passionate about. And so then I went to law school and I was still passionate, um, about, Doing my own thing, but then I became very passionate about um, democratizing access to legal advice. Um, I come from a, a middle class background. My parents um, were both um, immigrants to Canada, so I'm a first uh, generation uh, Canadian. And so I just was really passionate about equalizing um, the barrier to entry into law. And so the idea for Ross Intelligence, which was a tool that enabled um, lawyers to easily ask questions to get answers for you um, was something that I felt really excited about. And but here's the funny part, and this is how life goes. Um, I didn't connect all those thoughts. It was actually my co-founder at my first company, Ross, his name's Gimo Oviagle. He actually came to me and said, Hey, he was a computer science student at the University of Toronto, and he was like, Hey, um, have you heard of you know natural language processing and machine learning? Um, do you think if a system was able to read through a bunch of documents and answer legal questions? What do you think about that? And it was like the light bulbs went off in my head, and I was like, "This is the opportunity I've been waiting for because it really joined all my passions. So that's how it happened there. And that's how I jumped in and um made the the jump into entrepreneurship.
0: What was the impact of Ross Intelligence? I know you're still uh, affiliated with the company, but what was that initial impact? What were some key learnings from? You know your entrepreneur kind of mindset just you're born with that you go through the jd your lawyer what was that like to almost flip the switch become a full-time founder um what what were some key takeaways from that experience
1: yeah i would say uh some of the the happiest times uh learning through um what it means to be an entrepreneur so i'd say one of the highlights and this is going to get me to lessons learned but pretty early on in Ross's uh, history, we ended up uh, going and taking part of Y Combinator's uh, accelerator. So this was back in the summer of 2015. And I learned a lot there. Um, uh, and they told me a lot of great advice. And a lot of the advice you can get from Y Combinator for those listening, you actually can get them via YouTube videos of folks talking, you know, you can listen, you could read Paul Graham's essays um, and you can get the almost the exact same Information. There's no there's no difference in the information really going through the incubator or listening on YouTube and reading the essays. But here's the first lesson I learned with Ross, which is there's just so many things you almost have to go through to learn, um, and um, and there is an element of entrepreneurship where uh, especially for first time founders where you always think because you're trying to push this impossible idea forward and you're so used to like rising above it, you almost start to question whether. Like which business advice is universal and which is not doesn't really apply. And so I learned with Ross, and one of the biggest lessons was um, that there's just universal truths in any business that are really important to follow. And I'm so happy that with Ross, it allowed me to learn that on the fly. Um, I think selling into legal tech, not like legal technology, and selling to lawyers was a huge challenge that was really fun to figure out as well. And it actually gave me um, a lot of people now talk about product led growth. Ie, you know, making it super easy for someone to sign up and get onto your technology, and that was even the case back when we were doing it at Ross. Um, it was still like well known, but I think like 2012, that's almost a buzzword now. Product led growth, product led growth, community. Um, you know, going to events and driving community and driving product led growth, and that's something that we had um, figured out quite well at Ross organically. And so that has been um, a huge takeaway for me was just the importance of building a super awesome, elegant product, but then making it, removing all the barriers for someone to go in and try it um, and, and get up and running with it. So we eventually ended up having it so you could try Ross for multiple weeks for free. You didn't even have to enter a credit card. If you were excited about it, you press next and you could go in and ask Ross a question almost immediately. And I think that that was a really awesome lesson that I've taken with me. Um, in my career, both now as a as a second time founder, but I also angel invest and and mentor a lot of startups. And I always tell them, look, that this is what product led growth really means. And um, it's great to have that experience under my belt.
0: So, so you go through Y Combinator twenty fifteen, which you know was still quite well known then, but e- even more so now. What was that experience like? We've had some other founders come on this season that have gone through Y Combinator, I feel like the biggest reoccurring theme there is the community, meeting other like-minded individuals. It helps you up your game because everyone's at that same caliber. Does that resonate with you? How was that experience for you, especially back in 2015, uh, which was less common for Canadians to be there?
1: I think the really amazing thing Y Combinator instills is that you are amongst, yes, that community and all those cliches, but more specifically, it shows you the, uh, the, uh, what's possible. Um, and so when you're sitting and asking Justin Kahn, who scaled Twitch and sold it to Amazon for like a billion dollars, and you can ask him questions about scale, that's a, that's a person who knows about scaling. Um, when Michael Seibel, who was involved in Twitch and other companies as well, is there and offering you advice, that's big. My partner in my group uh, at the time was Gary, uh, um, who is now coming back as the president. And I mean, like, it was incredible where every, you know, you can go ahead and just ask Gary Tan what he thought about um, early stage management and product development and product road mapping. And you're talking to people who have accomplished and scaled technology. To a point and level that is unimaginable for most, and I think it's it's really hard to think about what's possible unless you start talking to folks. And you know, these are amazingly humble, um, great, uh, helpful um, human beings. And then when you realize that they did and followed like certain advice and truisms and worked really hard and achieved what they achieved, it just made it all seem less like something that's far away and an impossibility and much more possible and feasible. And then that's amplified by your batch. So then, you know, you're working. So those are your partners that you get to ask and, 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 and correspond with, but then in your batch are a bunch of other companies. And you could just tell these people like really, you know, multiple time founders in that batch. And that's super cool because as a first time founder, you're, you know, there are people kind of giving you a little bit of advice. And then, you know, uh, in six months time after the batch, you start seeing escape velocity from who's the best in the batch in terms of what's going on. And it's just been incredible because that same attitude of what's possible then played it through in your batch, but then you see it on future batches as they come through because we, we really do all kind of stick together. So I would say uh, when I think back about Y Combinator, I just think very fondly about it. And I recommend anyone who's listening to this um, to go through the Y Combinator application process. This is not me plugging even Y Combinator. Note, I just said the application process, because what I, what I am a firm believer that just doing the YC application as a co-founding team, even if you throw that out and you don't submit it, it would be silly for you to do that. You should submit it. Even just that exercise, I think, strengthens your company because it forces you to speak clearly about what you're building, why you're building it, who your target is, like what users you're, you're going after, what does competition look like? And a lot of the questions that seem like no-brainers that I think oftentimes early-time founders and first-time founders um, don't, don't do. not do. So um, that's a pro tip. Uh, you could do that right now. And I think anyone listening to this who hasn't, you should. To me, that
0: sounds like you know resonating with the, the power of story and you know, potentially that's something that you always had experience with, with being a lawyer, you know, starting Ross going through Y Combinator and now you're mentoring other startups. How important is story uh, and like that kind of purpose, the vision, the mission, and, and what are some things that you find that people usually get wrong and things that they should be kind of focusing more on. So when they're, when they're going to the story and the mission of their, of their company.
1: I think, the vision and communicating your vision is super important, sure. I think storytelling is super important as well. But I think the biggest mistake most people make is that they don't talk to users um, enough. Um, and if they, even when they do, which most aren't doing enough, they're trying to get that user to confirm what they're building. And most people are really nice so when you say, hey, Evan, you run a podcast, don't you? You're probably gonna say, yes, I do. And then I say, well, wouldn't it be better if the audio quality was the best? You'd be like, yes, another truism. Okay, well, we're building this new solution that plugs into what you're already using and you can use it. Would you be interested? And you might say yes. But the, the, the truth and the reality there is you probably might not even care for that technology in practice because you don't know really what it does. And i'm not really listening to you so what i would encourage everyone to do is really dive in with your users and ask much more kind of open-ended questions where you might get hurt and it's through that pain that you actually find and hone your true idea and it's not a pivot sometimes people are like oh i pivoted from x y no no early stage is about finding really what you're building so you know evan you run a podcast what are your biggest pain points and i might end up finding out through talking to you that it actually is around you know booking and uh, like finding and sourcing or emailing your guests and all of a sudden i might have originally my vision is i want to improve, improve podcasting because you know audio uh, and uploading is really tough but now i'm actually building a, an, a scheduling application that actually what i realized it's not just for podcasters it's for anyone who runs and and needs to talk to multiple people so I think um, oftentimes people uh, come up with an idea. They might test it with a family or or, or family and friends, and then they just kind of stubbornly want to build that for some reason um, early. And that's not what you should do. I think talking to users, and when I mean talking to users, I mean um, every week as an early stage founder, you should be able to find five to 10 people to talk to. And if you can't find five to 10 people to talk to you when you're not even selling them anything yet, that's probably a red flag for you that you might not actually be able to sell anyone your idea and the pro and the solution that you're selling, because if you're having trouble getting them to even talk to you, how severe is that problem? So if instead I'm like, "Hey, Evan, you run um you know uh, an awesome podcast. I'd love to chat about your challenges." Um, and like, you know, if you were really passionate, Evan, and you were like, absolutely, I'd love to chat with you about that. That's a great indication that you have problems that need to be solved and that there's the, the technology solutions that you're currently deploying might not be um, great. And that's an opportunity. So I think sometimes uh, founders, they, they, they just kind of, you know, they, they get very protective. And the reason why that is makes sense. You're trying to not get hurt. Because how about if you tell me Evan? No, I actually love the audio quality of the tool I use. That that sucks. You know, I told all my friends and family I have a website, I have a landing page. I'm supposed to be the audio podcast person, um, and all of a sudden you just told me something that I didn't want to hear. But it's in hearing the things you don't want to hear that that's where the gold is.
0: How do those questions change over time? So in the beginning, you know, the focus is pretty broad, and you're trying to find you know a pattern of a similar problem that people have, how does that morph as you kind of slowly build the product, start building features? Do those questions change? Are you still running it the same way? Are you still interviewing customers on a regular basis? How, what does that look like from that original standpoint to maybe you have something half-baked, You know, maybe there's something somewhat functioning beta level? Does that change?
1: Yeah, I, I, I think that's a, a really great question to ask, to talk a little bit about the difference between um, the early conversations you get around forming your hypothesis. Um, eventually you have to go all in on on something. So if you have a bunch of conversations, you're averaging five to 10 a week for your first few months, you should start to hear some consistent things around a pain point that people you know, are having. And one of the things you should ask them is, how much would you pay for a solution that solves that problem? And considering you now have all that going on, the the conversations do shift. They go from less general, what are the issues you're having around podcasting? And to use this example that we've been using so far, to more like, okay, like I'm going to show you the MVP here. Um, You know, what is stopping, like, I'm going to send you the contract now, Evan, Um, are you going to buy it? And hearing for those objections, like getting it over the line. So you go from more general to find the problem. So then you have to you have to have conviction and you have to go all in on trying to solve the problem eventually, um, and and then trying to refine that. Um, and I think early on, uh, I would really recommend to everyone to read the book "Crossing the Chasm" by Jeffrey Moore. It's a classic, and I know we all like have heard it a million times, but I think it's really important. And there's another book he wrote that's called "Inside the Tornado" that a lot of people do not read, but I I recommend that one. And it talks about how um, in order to cross the chasm. You have to be really thoughtful about your the users and the bowling pins on the other side, um, so that you can build word of mouth that eventually can kind of grow into what he calls a tornado, which is kind of more mainstream adoption. And so, why I bring that up, um, Evan, is that I believe that your you have to go and start specializing, and then quickly thereafter, once you start getting product market fit, you then have to change to kind of what other feature sets, etc., that you could you can you can go out and build. So. There is a difference, but what doesn't change throughout is that you're trying to have as much contact with the user as possible. The questions and kind of what you're doing is different, but I would say, um, you know, uh, the biggest the biggest uh, issue that you get with most folks is that, and most teams, uh, is that they don't talk to users enough. How do you
0: prioritize features as you're going further? Is it, you know, impact? Is it focus on data usage? Is it, you know, something that gets people to open up their wallet and spend money? Or is it like a combination of all of those or, or other things? Like what are, what are like the main things you're looking for when adding extra features onto your already, the product that has some sort of product market fit already?
1: I think it is a combination of all those things. But one of the things that I think people don't think about enough is the, uh, are, are people going to pay for it? Uh, especially early stage, like we get excited about building the most exciting technology and something that you wouldn't believe, you know, um, but at the end of the day, I think one of the best ways to product roadmap is, hey, Evan, like, I, it's nice to know that you're having issues with scheduling on your podcast. Like, would you pay $15 for this technology? If you say yes, and then I say, hey, I, I'm able to add email templates for an extra $2 a month. Is that something you'd be interested in? I'd rather do that up front than go out and build it and then show up with it to you and say, hey, Evan, like I built all this. Would you pay me an extra two dollars for the upgrade? Because that might not be something that actually matters to you. So I think that that's almost like the governing question. But you don't want to do everything according to that because um, there's always exceptions to it and you don't want to just build For what your current customer set will pay for? Because part of that crossing the chasm and multiple bowling pins is you might have other customer segments that might want another feature, and you're just beginning to have conversations about what they'll need. So you have to, that goes into weighing some of the other stuff, which is like market sizing, the opportunity for this particular feature. Um, Are you is this feature going to go out and get you more top-of-funnel users, Um, new users, new paying customers, or is this gonna enrich? your current customers and reduce churn, or is this going to drive additional revenue sources from your current customers? And so um, these are all determinations you have to make um, early on. And then you weigh that accordingly um, uh, to kind of your solution, your runway um, and the market and the vertical you're going after as well.
0: I'm loving this framework and, you know, Ross is in legal tech. You're now, building Flexpa in health tech, two notoriously hard fields. How we could either, you know, reflect on Ross or, you know, Flexpa might be a bit more, uh, you know, current right now, you're going through the problem right now, but how would you apply that framework to Flexpa? Like what was initial hypothesis? How did that develop and, you know, get you to where you are right now?
1: Yeah. So for folks listening in, um, Ross was a legal research, um, natural language processing machine learning company. So we just made it really easy to answer legal questions. And we also did some auto-drafting and and summarization there as well. And then with Flexpa, it stands for flexible patient access and we make it really easy for health data to flow. In the United States, a rule changed and now insurance companies in the US um, have been federally mandated for certain bits and certain plans. to to be able to have you share your health data and claims information instantly by way of an API call. So think almost plaid, but instead of a bank, it's it's your uh, health insurer, and you're connecting that into any application you want. Um, The idea with Flexpa came by way of a couple joining roads. So I actually, one of them is I married a doctor. So my wife's an ICU pulmonologist, and I got to see... Kind of what health data interoperability and the shortcomings there so far mean to specialists in particular, because you're coming typically from another hospital system and another provider, and they they have limited information about you. And so a product where um, people can get information instantly and have you bring that in digitally um, just made sense. I also was uh, someone who actually could have been a user of this, where I got into a pretty gnarly cycling accident, uh, road cycling, and ended up having to go out and navigate getting my health data um, and sending it into an insurance company. And this was out uh, a couple of years back, but I ended up going to a records department and they asked me, do you want it printed or on CD-ROM? And I was like, I haven't seen a CD um, in a long time and being printed, that's not gonna help because I need to send it by email. And so they only gave me those options. So I ended up having to drive to a UPS store and digitizing those sheets and then emailing it. So I knew that there was something severely broken there. And then it was kind of um, uh, a really awesome lucky bit where um, my two friends and, and co-founders, uh, Josh Kelly and Tom Hamilton, um, Tom came, he was also a lawyer and was uh, worked over at Ross, uh, first employee over at Ross. And Josh, our chief technical officer, had built out uh, in the OAuth space before and also had played around with medical data APIs. So it all just kind of came together quite nicely. And now I think just to, to go back and kind of show you that um, we we practice what we preach, the original idea for Flexway actually was a different company. It was called Automate Medical. And the idea originally was to use these new health data APIs to build a platform on top of health data record systems that would allow for automatic insights. But then what we once we dug in, we saw that it wasn't really easy to use these new APIs and no company had federated them and created almost like a plaid for health type play. And so we just kept our ears open and we also had asked hospital systems in the past, do you wanna buy this precision health system? And you know they were like, yes, but it might be a year or two and budgets and this and that. And so we, we, we talked to as many people as we could and ended up landing on Flexpa using that iterative process that we all learned uh, to do in YC. Josh went through Y Combinator with another company, a company called Afiga in the W20 batch. So it's funny that um, all three of us have some YC background in, in our DNA as well.
0: So you talked about uh, you know, a federally regulated mandate that open sourced all this data. So with that tailwind behind you, was this data locked up because of like technical issues? Is it more lucrative for this data to be siloed I guess like what had to cause this federal mandate and I guess what are you thinking about like when you're looking at uh, like tailwinds to kind of amplify your business as well?
1: Yeah, so it was definitely the case where, sure, early on there was more technical challenges, but we are in 2022. uh, so. I, uh, the reason why it hadn't changed before, I believe, is for competitive reasons. So, you know, if you have and it's really difficult for a patient to go from one doctor to the next, it really lends them so- them to just stay within a specific doctor uh, or hospital system. And so that was used to the advantage of corporations in the past, whereas now we're now seeing if you think about what happened in the financial world, once we had high quality APIs, it freed up so much, you can now do things like connect your bank account and info and your credit card info into your Mint account and actually do um, you know some pretty awesome uh, budgeting. You can connect that into your retail investment capability. So you're able to invest as a retail investor and you don't need to have a bunch of money or a bunch of know-how to do a bunch of things. You can um, create your own retirement plan in the fintech world uh, by way of these APIs. You can invest in things like cryptocurrency. You can do a bunch of things. And so why I go through all those examples is we believe that what we're building at Flexpa, by enabling people to share their health data by way of an API into any application they choose, we're going to be enabling the Coinbases, the Robinhoods, um, the Wealth Simples of the future, um, because the, the building, the essential building block is the data. And so it's something I saw in legal where um, there's a a hyper competition on not allowing data to flow, even though it should be open and available. And the neat thing that happened in health is that by way of something called the Cures Act, um, the Democrats and Republicans kind of pushed so that health data would go digital and interoperable via these new APIs. And um, that's what allowed us to have these building blocks at Flexpa to build uh, what we're kind of, uh, when pressed for time, always call kind of like plaid for health.
0: What are some nuances about building in the API space? You know, Plaid is a, is a very famous example there. I think you even have a member of the, the early Plaid team that's invested in Flexpa. What are some nuances with building an API business versus, you know, Ross was more in that NLP space or versus consumer, whatever that may be? Uh, what are some differences there?
1: Yeah. So, uh, I would say, yeah, Ross was more of kind of like an enterprise SaaS play. Um, and then we did a lot of great product led growth there, which, which did carry over, but the main difference with an API company, I believe is you have to be extremely easy to use and really focus in on the developer experience. So, whereas, uh, so the the sell or the, the, uh, you, know, who you're communicating your product to changes pretty dramatically. So, Instead of selling to business folks who um, uh, are looking to purchase a piece of software to drive either efficiency or more profits or whatever that might be, you're selling a tool to the to directly to developers to enable them to drive the business needs of their businesses. So um, what that generally means, and I believe I'm biased, is that you have to build a really um, kick-ass product because. Developers themselves are going to be the ones jumping in there and assessing it. And so it has to be not only a great product, and the other thing is you have to have really great developer documentation as well. So um, there's this added layer where, yes, you're selling the product, which is the federated API ability and the ability to kind of add a certain functionality into your uh, application pretty rapidly. But there's almost another part of product when building an API-first company, and that's developer documentation. And I think uh, that's just as important as product uh, in many ways, because um, a really great API first company, you don't really have to have a conversation with any human if you don't want to. You can go in, you should assess the code, see if it works, know what pricing looks like, um, get started, sh- put in your credit card and off to the race as you go. And I think that that's where the overlap comes with product-led growth, because for with, at the tail end there, and once we really got the engine going with growth at Ross, it was all product-led growth, um, and I think that that carried quite well into the idea of um, ensuring that it's easy, that there's documentation, that the FAQs are set, and most importantly, that there's no barrier to seeing the value of that product as both the end user, um, but who also has the budget and is going to be making the decision to bring it in or not.
0: When you, when you take a look at, at APIs, I think most people you know have a general understanding of what an API does, how it functions, you know, it is somewhat of a buzzword now, everyone's looking to build APIs. When you're building in this space, I'm assuming some of the technology that you're trying to integrate with can be a bit archaic or difficult. So what are some what what are the hard things about building an API tool from things that you're trying to plug into is that even difficult we talked a little bit about like that product-led growth and like developers using it but what about on the other side into the kind of these established tools like what if they just say no what does that look like
1: yeah that's a, a really great thread to highlight i think that's the other really challenging thing the product with an api first company that you're selling is certainly the end you know Product, the end result, but what you're also selling is figuring out all of the business challenges and, in in and setting up those APIs with those large orgs. Um, that's what people are also paying for. They're paying for the ability, you know, when you purchase and you pay for Plaid, you're you're buying the ability to have bank accounts sync into your application and money transfer, etc. But what you're also really doing is not going to the chase website and finding their API and fettering it. You're not going to the bank of Montreal site. You're not going to RBC. You're not going to bank of America. You don't, you're, you don't want to do that. And so, um, I guess the insights there is that it's very hard. (laughs) It's very difficult because on one side of your business, you have to be cutting edge best in class on the developer side, super easy to use, no business jargon, straightforward, but on the other side of your business, Um, it's old school and you're dealing with larger orgs and it's large and enterprise. So in some ways, a great API company is almost like a travel converter. You know, when you go to a different country and you have to plug in something into their, uh, you know, electrical socket so that your tools will work. That's what I always say a good API first company does. We take the business complexity and we take the technical complexity and we, we eat that pain for anyone trying to launch a tool where health data and insurance claims information more specifically is helpful to them what what
0: flexpa unlock once you kind of reach that you know that peak or that kind of mass market adoption you know i know you're based in the united states but up here in canada like my dentist doesn't speak to my therapist who doesn't speak to my family doctor so does it just unlock a better medical experience for that end user? Is it better data? Is it better medical attention? Like, what are the? It can. It could be all of those. What are What are the things that it unlocks?
1: Yeah, I think the first thing that it unlocks that it unlocks a lot of things. But the thing that I'm most excited about is better overall patient care, because when data doesn't flow, um, the person who suffers the most is the end patient. Because at the end of the day, there is information that could actually go towards them receiving better treatment, better pharmaceuticals, better care overall, and better attention that currently just get lost because there's, such, there's so many leaks when it comes to data in the health sphere. So I think better overall care is great. Another thing that I'm really excited about is that it enables a click and mortar approach to health. So right now, a lot of the time you have to go in and see a doctor because the data has to flow and there's like these systems in place for that. But when it comes to our needs, I think the best form of care is um, brick and mortar care is never gonna go anywhere. I think it makes total sense that, and you do need that to occur. But I think there's a lot more that we can do on the virtual care side and having data be able to flow from brick and mortar to, to virtual and back and forth and all around is, is super important. So I think enabling, um, better forms and different forms of care, um, increasing the ability for people in rural areas to be able to go and see specialists. Um, have better over it, it leads to that number one point. But what I'm talking about in this case is just enabling that um, more uh, uh, receiving care in a more uh, in a much easier, more kind of uh, seamless way. And then the other thing that I would love to highlight is uh, efficiency. I think right now the way that health works across, you know, whether you're in the US, whether you're in Canada, by having this lack of data interoperability, what ends up happening is you just spend a lot more money than you need. Because if I was to know that, you know, Evan saw this person, did that. I know that when he was 16, this happened, and when he was 20, this happened, and when he was et cetera, all of a sudden I can actually start making much more informed bets on your treatment and your care. And there wouldn't necessarily be, you know, it removes mistakes, but it also removes unnecessary spending. So I think at the end of the day, driving efficiency and better care in having better data could kind of lead to those two things. I'm hyper aware that that's the holy grail, you know, like to say something is cheaper and better is usually something that is rare. But um, I think when you think about technology, that's what excites me most about it is typically you get something that is both cheaper and better for the most part. And it enables more people to get on and, uh, and, um, and receive the benefits of that system. And so in law, that's what excited me there. And in health, that's what excites me here. Um, I think the other thing is good access to, uh, to um, you know, healthcare, is, should be and is a fundamental right. And it excites me that if we improve the data infrastructure and the highways, what that means at the end is, is like I mentioned, just a better system for everyone across the board. The, this API
0: thread here is really fascinating me. So just like you mentioned there with highways, when you're building an API company, you're essentially building the infrastructure, the highway that everyone's going to run on it. When is a good, I feel like timing is quite important here because if no one's maybe even going to use the highway, then why even build it? So is there an affliction point where enough either virtual health or any other kind of health tech needs to already have been built or like that industry is starting to bubble before you can get into this API space? I'm just interested to see like with like Plaid, because it might be a bit more of an obvious example, you know. The, the main financial infrastructure is built, and then like, there's this rise of fintech that you're kind of following. So is it a similar thread there?
1: Yeah, I think if you look at Platt and if you look at fintech, there's an analog here. So they had what can be referred to as kind of like a black swan event with um, the recession back in 2008. And when that occurred, people wanted uh, more decentralization and they wanted to have more control and insight into their financial bets and world. And what ended up happening was there was this rush to try to build these financial tools that were better and have more connectivity into banks and more insights, but there wasn't a mechanism to enable that. There weren't the highways there. So then Plaid ends up kind of being at the perfect place at the right time. I think the analog to that is, the, is COVID. So when COVID happened, I think we all, uh, and it asked a lot about our governments It asked a lot about, you know, uh, private practice, uh, public across the board, where it was like, why can't my health data flow? What do you mean we don't know how many people have COVID? What do you mean we don't have all this data? And so I think it, a, a lot of people that sparked our uh, our need for it. And what that set off actually was record amounts of venture capital heading into health technology companies. So the last two to three years, I would say it's only gotten higher. This, there has been a slowdown with, the, with just uh, market realities and, and the public market slowing down as well. But I think you've there was this, this crazy overpour of talent and money into the health technology world. Um, and now people are looking up and saying, well, I'm trying to build X, Y, or Z, or for the Canadian Z solution. Um, I don't want to have to build the plaid for digital health type play. I don't want to build Flexpa and my company because Flexpa is its own company. It comes with incredible, a crazy amount of complexity um, that if you're trying to have an easy way to get claims history so that you can refer and help people select the right health plan, you wanna focus on select, helping people build uh, the solution to find the right health plan, not on the getting the data in to make that. So um, I think we're, we're the beneficiaries of this timing um, coming off of you know a really tough time in human history um, and one that I, I had a front row seat with my wife who was, you know, in the ICU as a pulmonologist and hearing, you know, the craziness around health data flows um, was something that just inspired me to to jump out there and, and get building.
0: When, when you think about health data, at least me personally, and I, I think other people would agree, it's, you know, it's a very personal, private data. People don't want that to be leaked, they want it to be ultra-secure, just like your financial data. So where would Flexbook come in with that? Are you more of a, a pass-through, like it, the onus is more on the both sides of the API, and you're kind of just passing that information through? I guess, what, what does security look like? like what does that working with that kind of personal data look like for you?
1: We're really lucky because we have the experience from um, legal data and financial data uh, behind us. Um, and the kind of the security and the protocols and kind of that the, the experience there. But we're also lucky in something that you said where um, the source of the APIs are large insurance companies or large hospital networks. And then we're driving the, that into solutions, ho- other hospital networks or other insurance companies, um, pharmaceutical companies, government agencies. And so we do act as a pass-through, but at the same time, um, we're really uh, passionate about ensuring um, that Uh, Flexpa acts as this kind of educator and steward for individuals um, as that data flows. But one thing that has been really exciting um, has been the response from people. So whenever I told people at first, I was like, hey, you know, how are people going to feel about um, syncing their health data with an application? Um, And what's been interesting is most people are like, I can't believe this didn't exist before. Because when you think about how important your financial data is, um, and you know syncing that with an application, I think because that's become so commonplace, people are now having similar expectations of their health data and until Flexpa there hasn't been a solution that enables that and so um, while I at first w- kind of waded into these waters, um, you know, uh, with, with kind of certain expectations, I've been blown away by people being like, absolutely. That's incredible. You mean, I don't have to fill out the same form all the time. Every time I go to a new doctor, you mean, I now will know if something's covered or not. You mean now I don't have to keep a list of all the medications I take and I can just sync it into an application and not have to remember the exact, you know, pharmaceutical name and you know who prescribed it and what you know the instructions are. So I think the future, if you could imagine a world where you are treating your health data in a similar way that you treat your financial data, I think that's what's coming. I think that's what we want, and Flexpa is really the uh, mechanism, the infrastructure to enable that.
0: It seems to me like you have a front row seat to the health tech space, and obviously COVID has propelled that. where do you see this this industry going like obviously like with wearables apple watch whatever that may be apple's making a big play into health uh you know you're looking to connect to insurance you know which in the u.s can reduce premiums all these different factors there where do you see this going you know I, i still think it's like early innings for health tech but I guess, where do you see this space going, especially having that front row seat?
1: Without sounding kind of uh, nuts, I think that health technology will be an area which drives some of the most significant technological breakthroughs in humanity's history. Because if you think about it, and it's not that crazy to say, um, Right now, the way that we find out that we have a disease is we have symptoms of that disease. And I think in the future, that's going to seem absolutely insane. Wait a minute. The only way you knew you had cancer was by having cancer. The only way you knew you had diabetes was you had diabetes. Um, So, you know, in diabetes, actually, to pull that thread, there's something called pre-diabetic, which now over the last 15, 25, 30 years has become a lot more commonplace and understood. And I think with the data and the insights that we're going to be able to drive, I think we're going to see similar breakthroughs. And I'm particularly excited about the intersection of health data plus. So what do I mean? Health data plus your genomic information, health data plus your financial data, health data plus your geographic location. And what this all will mean is really driving insights into improving um, our quality of life and what's possible on the forefront of scientific breakthroughs, because even like clinical trials, clinical trials, they're few and far between, actually, when you really dive in, and you see like on the cutting edge of pharma, it's very hard to get a new amazing drug through and, and for good reason, but one of the, the, the for all the reasons we expect, but one of the reasons why it's also very difficult is it's hard to actually find the right people for a clinical trial. But if you can imagine Flexpa enabling a bunch of people to share their data and be alerted if there's a clinical trial that is is right for them, all of a sudden we're decentralizing clinical trials and that's leading to breakthroughs. If you're able to get insights delivered to you on your your phone um, or on your watch and it says, hey, just to let you know, considering you have X, Y, and Z, you know you shouldn't be eating X, Y, and Z, and there's everything's plugged in. Your food delivery is plugged in with your health data, your financial data. You should be saving X amount because of X and Y. So I think there won't be as many barriers. And right now we think of health tech as health tech, but I think in the future it's going to just kind of m- bleed into, and then eventually there won't be as much of a line. And that consumer tech, health tech, financial tech, and a bunch of these um, industries are going to flatten out, and it's just it's going to be become so second nature to us that we won't think of it as, I don't think of fintech as fintech anymore. And what I mean by that is when I connect uh, my bank info to my retail uh, investment application, I don't think to myself, oh, what a neat financial technology application. I just think that's pretty you know, cool technology. That's really helpful. I want to accomplish that. And I think we're going to see the same with health. And I think one of the key catalysts is going to be health data interoperability. And I'm proud that Flex was building towards that reality.
0: And speaking of trials, the conversation that Brandon and I had about power, super, super interesting. And I know you're you're, you're associated there as well. I guess also like that's very interesting how you're gonna see them flatten and things will become more universal there. How do you also think about kind of these bigger tech giants getting into the medical space? I know Amazon's making a big push, Apple's been you know, kind of obvious for a few years now. Do you see kind of a, a changing of the guard or a changing of like the power within the medical space? Are we going to see more of these tech giants like owning the full stack, like owning the the clinical that like you go see the, your Amazon
1: doctor and you get your phar- pharmacy through Amazon? Like, are we going to see more of that? I think we're going to see more, but I don't think it'll go full stack. I think What we're now starting to see is that these very large companies have expertise, um, in adjoining areas and are able to, or believe that they can add value and, 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 you know, come into health. And I think that's a a great thing. I think, um, being able to, uh, competition is super important, I think as well. Um, so I think it's great to see multiple players at all times. Um, and I also think, this is all just a march towards a world where companies with really great products and great design are going to actually and and who are tech first are going to continue to um, take the lead. You know, uh, it's cheesy to always you know the the famous kind of software is eating the world, but I do think that software is eating the world and good hardware is eating the world too. Um, and so I think that that's what we're seeing more of that, but. Do I think that that's a foregone conclusion? No, I would say, you know, we're in the uh, first period of the first game of seven, uh, and uh, the puck just dropped in Health Tech.
0: With that Mark Andreessen quote there, I think it'd be interesting to pivot into um, the impressive list of investors you've been able to raise from. Is there any kind of insights there? I know. You're a second-time founder now, so you're probably a lot better at these negotiations and getting in front of investors, telling that story, that mission. Um, but what are some some key takeaways or advice you would give others in that space?
1: I think it uh, would be foolish for me to say that being a second-time founder didn't help in terms of investors specifically like to see that. But I think if there is one secret without sounding super cheesy and not being helpful is that my life got much better. And I think as a founding team, things worked out when we really just focused on speaking to users, um, iterating and building a really awesome product and, um, staying disciplined and working really hard. Um, it's like, well, Andrew, come on, we need more than that. Um, and I think that there's always small things, you know, like that will, that I could offer advice to like, you know, run a tight process when you go out there and raise, you know, make sure you get warm introductions, etc. But. Um, there's a saying in sports, you know, winning cures everything. Um, and I think the analog in the startup and early stage world is a great product that you've put together, even if it's not even half working, but that is targeted at a problem that is massive, that has been validated and that, you know, people both have and are willing to pay to solve, gets you and and really changes everything. It's, it's, it's really night and day. And, um, I was lucky to experience this twice so far, I think the Ross experience was really wonderful and ended up raising from amazing investors there. And, and um, yeah, with this late, with this last, uh, this last push with Flexpa, it's been uh, absolutely awesome. I get to work with people who um, I've looked up to my entire career and count them as peers and friends and mentors. So, um, but everything is, everything is kind of like, okay, great. Now get back to building. I think nothing ever changes. And um, it's always interesting. Uh, and this probably will resonate with the folks who are listening. Like, you know, at first you really just want to get X and then you get X and then you're like, okay, great. Now I need Y. And so it's always similar. That that same thing takes over where now, as soon as we close that round, I was just thinking about, you know, expanding our first paying customer group, what use cases we're going after. And um, I do appreciate it. And I I try to take those moments to do so. And I encourage one big thing. I'll just leave. And I, I know we're coming up against time here, but, you know, finding that life balance and taking moments to celebrate your wins um, there's there's a, lot of, there's a lot of tough moments in startups, but uh, taking those moments is something that I've learned to do a lot more in my uh, second time around and something that's really important because it allows you to get more energy and um, continue to be as, um, as on the top of your game.
0: I'd love to jump into the, the quickfire round here. Uh, I noticed a huge bookshelf behind you. Uh, what is the best book you have read, can you be top three or just something that's been very impactful for you? I know you mentioned some earlier in our conversation.
1: Yeah, so I'm a, I'm a big fan of uh, the book I mentioned, which is uh, Inside the Tornado. Um, that That's one I recommend, Jeffrey Moore. Another one, uh, I actually just read it, uh, so there's some relevancy bias uh, at play. But it is uh, What You Do Is Who You Are, um, and that's by Ben Horowitz. Um, you know, also a classic is obviously the hard thing about hard things, but I, I, I'm not going to include that because you said three, so that'll be my second one. And then the third one was a recommendation from, uh, Eric Tornberg over at village global. It's called nonviolent communication. It's by, uh, Marshall Rosenberg. And, um, it's kind of an interesting title because nonviolent communication kind of sounds pretty out there, but what it's about is like, just the ability to ensure that you are communicating in a way to always drive the best outcome and, um, giving people the benefit of the doubt and and learning to ensure kind of unity. And I think in a, in an increasingly divided times, especially how we communicate with each other online, I think there's something really special about that. So I have tons more that I would recommend, but those are certainly at the top of my list. I guess I would have to also, you know, shout out the lean startup, um, as a classic, Eric, uh, Reese is also a mentor and, uh, an advisor here at Flexpa, so um, I'll plug I'll plug uh, the Lean Startup all, all day long.
0: I'll have to subscribe to Andrew's library. That sounds like <laughs> a good place to be. Uh, what are you most excited about this year? Uh, whether that's you know you know Flexpa business related or also personal.
1: So I'd say I'm most excited about uh, watching my son continue to grow up. I have uh, an eight month old son and. He's just been excellent and that's been really wonderful to just see the world through his eyes and get back a little bit of that creativity and spark. I think as an entrepreneur, it's a, a super special thing that you sh- you can tap into and, and drive more creativity. And then on the business side, I'm just, um, just has been incredible. We, we brought on a great new head of uh, product recently. His name is Brennan Keeler. He writes a Substack called the health API guy. So anyone listening to this that wants to learn more about health APIs, I would recommend that Substack. Um, and yeah, digging in there, increasing and, and really nailing down all the different use cases for Flexpo, because I think we're really excited about it's a no brainer that um, medical data will, will be able to be transferred seamlessly um, and sync across any application you want. Um, so that, that's, that's a no brainer. But what's always the, the art and the magic of a startup is what you do um, in the, those early uh, periods or innings. So um, that's what I'm hyper concentrated on. And that's what excites me.
0: So having a kid's like having your third startup on the go. It so, is, it is. I like that. Yeah. Uh, hard times. You mentioned Ben Horowitz' book there, but how do you deal with hard times personally? Uh, are you getting outside? Is it family? What what things help you keep balanced?
1: Yeah, I, I'd say that that work life balance and finding what works. Um, interestingly enough, for me, I find reading really is helpful. Uh, helps me unplug. Um, staying physical. I used to be really a big cyclist uh, pre accident, but even post. But having the kid has slowed down some of my athletic, uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, time, but I do think it's uh, a matter of finding what makes you feel recharged and doing that. So that's different for everyone. Um, but one thing that, you know, um, like I said, that reading, getting out, um, spending time with my kid has has really been a great, um, equalizer there, take him over, putting him on a, on a swing and just enjoying and seeing just the joy it is I of the world. It's been, it's been beautiful. So,
0: Love that. Andrew, our conversation has been so interesting. We bounced around a lot and very insightful, and I'm so appreciative of your time. And uh, thank you so much.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I I just want to thank you. It's really wonderful to see folks that you have on here. Some of them are, are pals, some of them um you know are folks that uh, i i've i've always looked up to as well in terms of being at the top of their game so thanks for doing what you're doing evan and it was a pleasure hopefully maybe in a future season i can come back and fill folks in on some of the uh, the other things that we'd be working on at flex as we continue to scale
0: i cannot wait to chat again thanks andrew Take care If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to subscribe, share with friends, and reach out with guest suggestions. Check out the podcast description for my social and website links to stay up to date with all future episodes.